It is tough speaking after uh, that last hymn. It's one of my all-time favorite hymns. I've said to Janet that that's one hymn that I want sung at my funeral service because the words are just amazing. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. And regardless of how we live our life, in all our sinfulness and everything, just the proclamation that if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I've had that conversation with Jesus many times when I've struggled with sin and been convicted. And the question, do you still love me? And the answer has never changed for me. And so it's tough. It's tough uh, starting out after that. But we're, uh, we're going to get in. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say that uh, Pastor Kevin and his worship team and Pastor Doug do such a great job of uh, leading us into worship, entering, taking us into worship, and then continuing on. And uh, Pastor Terry obviously does a fantastic job of preaching from the Bible. And I truly feel that I'm blessed to be sitting under their pastorship. It doesn't make the job this morning any easier. I always come to these mornings. I come to do announcements and stuff, and that's okay. In my job, I do a lot of uh, presentations to senior executives and clients and so on, and that's fine too. But when I come to bring a message, I'm always, always fearful. And I'm fearful because I don't control the content. I don't control the content. It's God's Word that I've been asked to share with you, and that is a tremendous privilege and a, f- and a fearful activity. And for that reason, I'm really appreciative of pastors, not just our pastors, but pastors throughout the world who take this book and go before God and then share it with, with their congregation. So I am standing in fear this morning, not because of you, but because of the task. And I also want to recognize that there are times when we come to these Sunday morning services thinking that they're about us. You know, the worship should be about us. There should be a song in there at least that is about me, that ministers to me. The pastor's sermon should minister to me. And that's, I think, an unrealistic expectation. It never happens Sunday after Sunday that every message that God has prepared is just for you. And so after being convicted of that many times in my own life, what I've realized is that even on the days that I feel so holy that God has nothing to teach me through the pastor's message, uh, you know, there's one thing I can do. Instead of just sitting there, I can pray. I can pray that God will remove that veil, whatever it is that's stopping me from listening. And if that doesn't happen, then I can still pray for the person on the stage or somebody sitting next to me or some other need that exists within the church. So I just want to recognize that, that this morning uh, you may be there and uh, you just need to write yourself with God as we enter into that time. Would you please bow with me as we, as we pray? Dear God, it is a privilege to be present before you and we just ask you that you would open our eyes our ears, our hearts, and our minds, so that whatever it is that you have to teach to each one of us this morning, that we would be receptive to your message, and at the end of it all, we will come out knowing you more, knowing you more intimately, and walking in a closer walk with you. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to carry on with this um, with the message series that Pastor Terry started a number of weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark. He took us to chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, the chapter, that portion ended with a confrontation between the teachers of the law, Pharisees, and Jesus. And it moves right into a different story. Mark's gospel is like that. He is moving from story to story. It's like he's a kid in a candy store, or he's a kid who's just come back from Canada's Wonderland or Disney, and all he wants to do is share stories. He doesn't go into any deep theological discussions unless it's something that's a conversation that happens between Jesus and somebody else. He doesn't try to unpack the, the mystery of any, God's, any of God's secrets. He just wants to tell the story. He's not like John who starts with a very deep theological statement in the beginning and so on. He's not like Matthew and he's not like Luke. He just wants to tell the story. And that's what you see from verse to verse or group of verses to group of verses. It's story after story. Because all he wants to do is proclaim what Jesus did when he was here. And so this passage that we're going to look at, we're going to just start in verse 7. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. This particular chapter is filled with stories. Stories that each can stand on their own if you were doing a sermon series. Stories that sometimes leave very strange questions in our minds. For example, Jesus talks about the eternal sin. What is the eternal sin? And there's been, even though Jesus clearly states what it is here, I've, I've heard pastors preach on that for three, three Sundays because they want to open that up even more. What does that mean? Because what the answer to that question is, is in fact a question about the Trinity of God, about the holiness of God, and so on. Or the last statement that Jesus makes where he, it almost seems that he's rejecting his own earthly family and establishing a new order for what family means. So there are statements that can be taken on their own and a sermon, a message could be done on each one. But I believe there's a theme, a thread, that runs through all the different interactions that Jesus has in this chapter. And that's the thread we're going to look at. And that's the thread where Jesus interacts with different groups of people and every single one of them sees him in a different light. Everyone sees Jesus as somebody that the other groups don't see him as. So the first group we're going to look at is the group or the crowds, the crowds that follow Jesus. If you'll follow along in your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 7 and we're going to pick the passages as we go. Matthew or Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. This is not an unusual scene in the Gospel of Mark. This is not an unusual scene in any of the Gospels. Crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. In fact, there are instances where Jesus takes his disciples, goes into a solitary place, and crowds find him. They go looking 
for Jesus. There are tons of examples, and we're going to look at a couple. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Matthew 12, 15, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. Matthew 15, 30, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Mark 2, 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. So this practice of the crowds coming to Jesus is fairly common. And there are two things that Jesus does in these interactions. He is healing the sick, but he's also teaching. He is addressing the crowd's interaction with him at both levels of their need, the physical healing and the spiritual healing. But if you look at any of these interactions that the crowds have, the recorded events, it almost always refers to them as coming to Jesus for physical healing. They always brought their lame, their blind, and so on. They came to Jesus because, I wonder if they saw Jesus as a means to an end. I wonder if the crowds sought him out because they knew that there was this young Jewish rabbi who had the power to heal physical illness. And so they sought him because they saw Jesus as a means to an end, an end to their physical illness, an end to their physical suffering. There's a story of a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, and she sought him out and touched the, the, garment, the end of his garment, and she was healed instantly. We have stories of fathers coming to see Jesus because their daughter is dying or is dead. Jesus was sought out by people for physical healing. Jesus was sought out, it seems, by the people as a means to an end. That's, no more, that's even more clear when you go to the week before crucifixion when Jesus enters Jerusalem and the crowd see him as the Messiah and they proclaim that here is the Messiah who is going to free us from the Romans. So they see Jesus as their deliverer, a means to an end from Roman oppression. But that's not all Jesus is. It does seem, though, that the crowds sought him because that's how they viewed him. Now, I'm not questioning that there were people in that crowd who would definitely have followed him, who would definitely come to know him. But all the accounts that we read, they all point to the fact that they came to him with their physical needs, the, the need for healing, the need for delivery, and the, the need for deliverance from their, from their illnesses brought them to Jesus. He was a means to their end. The crowds did not see him as God, as the Son of God or as God incarnate. There's a second group of people, and they're pointed out in verse 13, the 12 apostles. Jesus went up on a mountainside and, the, and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, which is actually a pretty cool title, if you, if you ask me. I asked my son, and he thought, well, is that really a good name if they're being called sons of thunder? 
And of course, as dad, I said, well, if Jesus gave them the name, it's got to be good. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, this is undoubtedly the group that was the closest to Jesus in his three years of ministry. These men spent time with him, traveled with him. They were given power by Jesus Christ to go out and heal, to preach, to drive out demons. They were the closest group of people that Jesus had throughout his ministry. And yet often we see that at this time in their ministry, in their relationship with Jesus Christ, they refer to him as rabbi, as teacher. They have not come to the point where they can proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. They have not seen that happen. That will happen a a little while down the road when Jesus point-blank asks them, who do you say I am? The question we have on our wall. Who do you say I am? And even then, many of the disciples are uncertain. They, they quote other people. So somebody says, you are, uh, you are so-and-so prophet. You're a prophet of the old. You're John the Baptist who's come back. You're this and you're that. And then Peter, obviously, who else, makes the proclamation. You are the Son of God. So at this time, we think that P- these disciples just know Jesus as a teacher, a good teacher, a good rabbi. He's unconventional. He does not make them fast on on weekends. He does not uh, make them observe rituals that other rabbis do their disciples. Uh, He is controversial. He takes the, the church to task. He's a good rabbi to hang out with. But that's all he is probably in their eyes at this time. The next group of people are the teachers of the law. These guys are a piece of work. Verse 22. We're just going to take a look at this one verse. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So these guys didn't get along with Jesus, and Jesus did not get along with them. This is probably the vilest statement that the teachers of the law or Pharisees or Sadducees made about Jesus, that he was doing all these miracles, driving out demons, healing the sick, in the power of Satan. And that is why the proclamation that Jesus has for them is very harsh, which is, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness. Now, Jesus wasn't kind to these guys on any day. If you look at any of his interactions with the teachers of the law, he took them to task. He didn't hold any punches back. He gave it to them the way he saw it. And if you go into the book of Matthew, there's chapter 23. Jesus pronounces seven woes on the teachers of the law. That's probably the longest proclamation of condemnation that Jesus has on any group in the Bible. He starts out by saying this in verse 13. 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That's, that's harsh words. These guys are pastors of the church. And Jesus is telling them, you're sending out missionaries, you're bringing people into the church, and what you're doing, in fact, is you're bringing them closer to hell than to me. I don't know if, uh, if you know any pastors, but I don't think if you were a pastor, you would want to hear that about your mission. You would not want to hear that about, uh, that about your ministry. And that's what Jesus is telling them. That's strong words. Those are not, those are not words that you use to bring, build bridges with people. Jesus has very little respect and a lot of disdain for these people. And it's because they have taken the law that he gave through Moses to free his people into a set of rules that enslave his people. The act of worship that God had asked his people to carry out as a sign of their adoration for him has now been turned into a series of transactions that they have to go through that all must be approved by the religious order. It's a religious order that is completely out of order. And Jesus can't stand for that. This is his father's house that has been turned into a den of robbers. And so he's not kind when he speaks to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Well, the next group that we want to look at briefly again is a group that's not, not talked about a lot in, in the Gospels. It's Jesus' earthly family. You know, we spend, we read, it's recorded all the time that Jesus spent with, with, within three years with his disciples, but there's a complete blank for most of Jesus' life with his earthly family, 30 years of his life on earth. We only have glimpses into that. And I wish, I honestly wish sometimes that the Bible had maybe recorded, I don't know, two or three instances of what was Jesus like as a teenager? You know, what was he like when he finished his apprenticeship and entered the college and career group? What, what was he like? You know, we were having supper a few weeks ago. Janet was out. I was sitting down with the kids. And I said to them, what, what's the first question you would ask Jesus when you see him in heaven? And Rachel, who's our littlest, she didn't have any questions. She just said, you know what, I'm just going to run up and hug him. So that's, that's fine. That's fine. It works. Anna said, who's, she's eight, and she said, I'm just going to go up to him and ask him how much it hurt when the nails went through his hand. And that's where she is. And Michael wanted to know that when God created the universe, did he just say it? Or did he actually do something? You know, like, he, did he say, let there be light? Or let there be light? Was there a gesture associated with it or just the word? And I guess that's a valid question as well. So they asked me, they asked me, what would you ask? And I said, I'll just ask Jesus if he played any pranks on his brothers and sisters. <laughs> it's a valid question. We don't know if he did, but as the big brother, you have the right to play pranks on your brothers and sisters. Now all his pranks would have been perfect. <laughs> nobody, nobody would have got hurt and everybody would have had a laugh at the end. But it would be nice to just have a little more glimpse into his earthly life, don't you think?
except that we do know that his family tracked him. Even when he left his home, they continued to track where he was. They continued to follow him. And we have an indication that of all his family, Mary was the only one who actually knew that Jesus was the Son of God because she'd been told that. We don't have any indication that the rest of his family knew that. Now, we read this interaction that Jesus has with his family, two of them here. So let's take a peek at that first before we dig into that. In verse 20, it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. You know, given, given the advantage that we have of history and the fact that we know Jesus as Son of God and in our Western context, we think that's a really irreverent statement. When his brothers come to see him or his family comes to see him, they say, is he out of his mind or he is out of his mind? Well, can I tell you that that's very common in Asian cultures. And what it means is we care enough about you to be tracking you and making sure that you are taken care of. So Jesus comes back into his hometown. One of the translations actually says, then Jesus came home. So he comes back to his hometown. His family finds out he's in town. They go to see him, to visit him. And all they see are thousands or hundreds of people surrounding him to the point that their big brother, remember he's their big brother, cannot even eat. So their instinct to take care of family kicks in. What is it that's consuming Jesus so much that he's not even eating? And so they say the same thing that many people within that context would say, he's out of his mind, he's lost it. You know, many times when we go back to Thunder Bay, all of the Laldin family, the rest of the Laldin family, they live in Thunder Bay, I'm the oldest cousin in my generation. I have uh, five other cousins. And the age difference between me and the youngest one is 19 years. The second youngest is about 17. And he's, he's a boy. He's almost 28, 27, 29, I think. And last, su- last summer when we were there, all of my cousins came to me and said, Solomon is about to make a decision. Uh, I don't, we don't think he is doing it right. Do you want to talk to him? So as soon as Saul came home from work, I said to him, Saul, we got to go for coffee. And that's not a good sign because all the cousins said, oh, you're going to go for coffee. Because that means that I'm going to have a serious conversation with my cousins. So a couple of days later, Saul and I got in the car, and the first thing I said to him was, are you nuts? (laughs) Are you nuts? What are you thinking when you're planning to do this. Now, I wasn't questioning his sanity. Well, actually, I guess maybe I was. But it is an expression of love that you have for a member of your family. So this statement that Jesus' family makes is actually a statement of possession. It is a statement that they love him and they care for him. And even though he's gone, they still want to make sure that he is taken care of. So rather than Judging the family, I think we should see the fact that they are still engaged in him. They may not agree with him at this time as to what he's doing, but they're still fully engaged in what he is doing. 
So we see the different groups and the different ways people see him. The crowds see him as a healer. The Pharisees see him as a rabble-rouser, as a disturber of peace. His earthly family sees him as a brother or a son. And the disciples see him as a good teacher. And you know the, the most amazing thing is that 2,000 years later, that view of Jesus has not changed. There are still people today who see Jesus as a means to an end. There are churches this morning who are preaching that if you have Jesus, you will have everything on this earth. If your good life now is now, then what is your heavenly life going to look like? But there are churches who are preaching that Jesus is a means to an end. The faith, faith word movement and uh, name it and claim it movement, all of those use Jesus as a means to an end. John MacArthur, who's a pastor that I, I have a lot of respect for, preached a sermon a long time ago on the faith movement. And, and I guess he, he's a lot harsher than I would be, but here's what he says. This subdivision of the charismatic movement is easily as superstitious and materialistic as the cargo cults of the South Pacific. The leaders of this word faith movement, and he gives a whole bunch of names, promise each believer financial prosperity and perfect health. Anything less, they argue, is not God's will. There are many people who chime in with this. The tentacles of this kind of theology has reached out far and wide. They have sought mainstream acceptance and they have managed to build relationships with people who, because of those relationships, will not speak the truth against them. And so this thing flourishes like a wildfire. Of course it appeals to people because it demands nothing but faith. It, demands, it doesn't demand holiness. It doesn't demand devotion or dedication. It only demands faith. And it promises that if you have enough, you'll get rich and healthy. That's a popular message. I suppose we could say that virtually every false religion ever spawned by man worships a God whose function it is to deliver some kind of cargo. That is, human religion invariably invents gods for utilitarian reasons. God becomes another tool in your utility belt. They invent gods that give them what they want. They invent deities to serve them rather than the other way around. The word faith theology has turned Christianity into a system that is no different from the lowest human religions. It is a form of voodoo where God can be coerced, cajoled, manipulated, controlled, and exploited for the Christian's own end. End quote. There are churches this morning who are teaching people in their pews that type of a view of Jesus Christ and God. There are other movements like the emergent church movement, emerging church movement, which takes Jesus as a good rabbi, as a good teacher. Jesus is a good teacher among all the other good teachers in the world and in our history. He is a good teacher among all of history that's been. He may be better than others, but there are others who are better than him. And as we build this faith, interfaith mosaic, we take what is good in Islam and we patch it in. And then we take what is good in Buddhism and we patch it in. And then we find Christianity and we say, what is good in Christianity? And we take a piece of that and we mesh it with the Islamic patch and the Buddhist patch. And as long as the three match, we're good. The mosaic, the quilt looks great. But anything that Jesus brings 
that doesn't fit that quilt of interfaith is thrown out. Ryan McLaren is a, is a, is a writer. He's a guru in the emerging church movement, and he wrote this new book. It's called, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? And of course, I think he's trying to get a rise out of making a title like that. I had a chance to read a chapter of this book, and the premise of the book is that if you put these four men together in a room, their conversation will focus on what is good in each religion and how it benefits humanity. And so the four of them will come together and they will compare notes and everything that is good in each religion will become a part of their conversation, but everything that is divisive will be thrown out. But can I tell you that there is no question greater than this question that is divisive. And I can confidently say, knowing that Jesus has already done this with his own disciples, if Jesus were in that coffee shop, he will ask Muhammad, and he will ask Buddha, and he will ask Moses, who do you say I am? And I can also guarantee you that their answer will not be, you are the son of the living God. This is the answer, and this is the question that divides history. There is only one right question to ask, and there is only one right answer to that question. And so as we move into this interfaith movement, the Christians have to have the courage to ask the question, who do you say he is? But at the same time, we have to have the courage to say, I know that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. So is Jesus just a good teacher? Is, is Jesus just a good friend? And as a parent, I, I've been convicted of this because when we talk to our kids and we've, we've tried to make sure that they have a holistic picture of who God is, but often we fall into this trap of softening the image of Jesus. You know, he's our friend. We were at, in Disney, and as we were getting onto one of the rides, one of the roller coasters, I've never been on one, so it was my first time, and I thought this is the safest place you can go on a roller coaster, right? So as I was getting in, I was trying to get Rachel to come with me because I'm afraid of roller coasters. And I, I said to her, Rachel, you, can, you should come with me because, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling so good. And she said, but Jesus is with you. He's your friend. <laughs> and she did come with me. But, but I think that's what we do. We present this softer image of Jesus. He is our friend. And he is. There's no doubt about that. But is that all he is? You know, there's only one group in this entire passage that gets the answer right. It's the impure spirits. If you look at verse 11, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. That's so ironic. That is so ironic. Here are the disciples who have seen Jesus do all the miracles. Here is his family, and maybe Mary did not tell the rest of the family that he was the Son of God. But here is his family who have seen him. Here are the Pharisees who have access to all of the law, 
all of the prophets, everything that's been written in prophecy about Jesus Christ, and they call him an agent of the devil. And the agents of the devil look at Jesus and say, you are the son of God. How ironic is that? Well, Jesus is God. We can accept him as a teacher. We can accept him as a friend. We can accept him as a healer. But if we don't accept him as God, we don't accept him at all. Jesus is the perfect God and he is the perfect man and his humanity and his divinity, one doesn't come at the expense of the other. They come in perfect balance. If you supersede one over the other, you take away Jesus and his true essence and you reduce him to your own understanding. You know, the Bible is very clear about why Jesus is God. There are countless references in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're just going to take a quick look. I want to be sensitive about the time as well. Let's take a look at Genesis 1. We're not going to go there. It's very simple. In the beginning. The Bible starts with three words. In the beginning. Which establishes God's eternal attribute. Only God was in the beginning. There is nothing else that has been without a beginning. Only God. And then, in John chapter 1, in the Gospel of John chapter 1, John does the same thing when he starts talking about the Word. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now that, that's got to mess you up. If you haven't been taught that from the beginning, that's really got to mess you up. So in the beginning was the Word. So there is a, a deity, a person in the beginning. And the Word was with God so that he was in communion and relationship with God. And the word was God, but he was also God. This deity was also God. That word, John goes on to explain in verse 8, I believe, is Jesus Christ. In verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So John walks us through all this these attributes of the Word, we're just going to take a quick look. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. Through Him all things were made. One of the other attributes of God is that He is the only Creator. There is nothing that has ever been created by anyone else except God. God is eternal, and God is a Creator. And then John goes on to say in the Bible, through Him, through the Word, all things were made. So here is this deity who was in the beginning, was with God, and through him all things were made. He was the creator. That is the Son of God, who is also God. I'm just going to skip a couple of verses. But let's go down to... Yeah, 14. The word became flesh and made the dwelling. I love the fact that, that John puts that verse in there because he's thinking, you know what, I've explained it to you already in 13 verses who the word is and what he came to do and where he came from. But just to be clear, I'm going to make a simple statement. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's Jesus Christ. You cannot, can not remove the divinity and the deity of Jesus Christ and still have the same Jesus. You know, we're going to take a look at a couple more verses quickly. 
Let's go to Hebrews. Hebrews 1. This is an awesome passage. This is, this is great because all, all that Paul does here is talk about the divinity of Jesus Christ. He starts with this in, chapter, in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir to all things and through whom he made the universe. So once again, he is calling upon the creator attribute of God and assigning it to Jesus Christ. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Except that in Isaiah 42 verse 8, it says God does not share his glory with anyone. There is no one that God shares his glory with or shares his worship with. And then God here in Hebrews makes the statement and says, the sun is the radiance of my glory. So God himself proclaims that God the Son is also fully God. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Sustaining the universe is another attribute of God. His omniscience, his omnipresence and his omnipotent omnipotence those are attributes of God that hold the universe together that hold all creation together and again God assigns those to Jesus his son in verse 6 let's take a peek there and again when God brings his firstborn into the world he says let all God's angels worship him so in the Old Testament Jesus God says you do not worship anyone And in the New Testament, he says, but when my son enters the world, all the angels will worship him. And we see that in Luke, when all the angels, the host of angels came and proclaimed uh, glory, glory to God in the highest. God himself proclaims that his son is God. And then, of course, verse 8, but about the son, he says, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. God proclaims that his son is fully God. And you know, those aren't just the, few, just the references we wanted to look at. There's one which is a classic. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 54 to 58. This is Jesus speaking about himself. And he says, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. And that would have totally, totally messed up the Jews because you cannot stand in front of a Jew and say, I am. Because I am is God's name, Yahweh. And when God met with Moses and said, go to the Israelites, Moses said, and who is sending me? I am has sent you. Tell them that. That's my name. And here is Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, a young Jewish rabbi, 
standing in front of the Jews and saying, here's my identity card. I am Yahweh. And they did not see it. Ladies and gentlemen, I think there is only one question today. You'll notice that in your bulletin answers for today, there isn't any questions to ponder. Because there's only one question. And it's been in our faces for a long time. Who do you say Jesus is? The answer to that question changes us radically. When answered truthfully, the answer to that question changes us radically. You know, if you look at the life of the 12 disciples, there was one disciple, Judas Iscariot. He answered that question differently than the answer right there. He had his own agenda. He chose not to do God's will. And he died without eternity. The other 11 disciples were radically changed. When they fully grasped what it means that Jesus is the Son of the living God, their lives changed radically and so did the world after that. Every single one of them, with the exception of John, was martyred. That's what history and tradition tells us. Ten of the 11 disciples died because they believed in that statement. Tens of thousands of people die today because when someone goes up to them and says, who do you say Jesus is? They go to this answer and say, he is Christ, the son of the living God. It is a reality. It is a real question. And it is a question that divides history, that divides families. But it is also a question that determines your eternity. You answer it right, and your eternity is right. And you answer it wrong, I think the consequences are too grave. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm going to ask the worship team to come as they're making their way up. We're just going to bow our heads and finish with a word of prayer. Dear God, we thank you that you have given us a little bit of an understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And God, I pray this morning that anyone who had doubts, who had questions about who Jesus Christ is, that you would have worked in their hearts and revealed yourself to them. And God, for those who know the answer, who know the right answer, I pray, God, that you would affirm them and that you would take them into a deeper understanding and a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God.